But I thank God every single day I have a Savior, and he shed his blood for me, and he died on a cross so that that cross would break the power of sin over my life, and that I really can walk in freedom. I can repent every single time his Holy Spirit brings conviction to me, and I can hear his voice again, and I can live a spirit-filled, spirit-led, victorious life. Hebrews 13 tells us to remember our leaders, to consider the outcome of their life, and to imitate their faith. But what happens when a leader falls? What happens when he has a serious moral failure, even committing sexual sin? Is restoration even possible? And if so, what does that process look like? This is part two in our series on leaders and sexual sin. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Brooks Popwell. Pure Life Ministries is no stranger to these important issues. We've been watching God restore fallen leaders for over 30 years, and we want to share some of the things we've learned. We talk about this and much more in today's program. Oh, and by the way, we've got a special announcement at the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. This is Purity for Life. Pastors addicted to pornography? It happens far more often than you might imagine. And just as often, these pastors know the way out, but the cost seems too high. Jim Lewis was a pastor who was addicted to pornography for 14 years. He joins us to talk about what kept him in sin for so long before finally coming clean and seeking help. Jim, one of the regrets that you've shared with me, and you're probably not alone with this, is that when you were a pastor and struggling with sexual sin, you kept going back to that sin, but you never got help. And I just want to get into some reasons why that happened. Um, But first, can you just give me a summary sketch of what you did overall during those years of ministry and what that struggle going on underneath was like during those years? Well, Brooks, I was in the ministry for 30 years. Uh, from 1980 until 2010. And uh, in every position of service, I was either the pastor or the senior pastor, uh, you know, of a church with a, with a staff. Starting when I was a teenager, uh, before I was even a Christian, I discovered um, fantasy and masturbation. Pornography wasn't really the problem in those early years. Uh, I had seen some pornography from time to time, but it really wasn't the issue. Mostly, I just fantasized about relationships with classmates and used that as an opportunity to uh, masturbate. And this sin lingered for most of the rest of my adult life. Even after I became a Christian, I sought freedom from it by praying and asking God to take it away from me but I never really experienced uh, much freedom. I didn't get into pornography until many years later, but uh, the last uh, 14 years of my pastoral ministry, I was addicted to pornography, and I never did get free. Well, you know, I think everybody who's a normal man can relate to that struggle starting 
probably early in life. Did that color your viewpoint later on in life? I don't know. Did you have the sense like this just can't be overcome? What was your kind of attitude toward it, do you think? Well, you can't live with this kind of sin for a long time without uh, some kind of delusion setting in. And you tell yourself lies in order to excuse your own behavior. Uh, you listen to the psychologist and even to other pastors who say that, well, masturbation is normal for young men. Everybody does it. It's a normal part of uh, human male sexuality, and uh, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. And you believe lies like that. And even though there's something in you that says this is wrong, this is sinful, this separates you from God, and every time you give in to it, you do feel guilt and you do cry out to God and confess it as sin, but you more or less accept it as, that, well, this is the cross I have to bear and I'm never really going to be rid of it. And so, um, and you don't talk about it. You don't admit it. You don't tell your wife that you struggle with it. You don't talk about it with the men in your men's group. You just accept that this is something that's part of being a human. And uh, still you cry out to God for it to go away. But every time the urge comes, you go right back to it. Yeah, so let's talk a little more about that other kind of inner chant, you could say, that kept going on in your mind, which is, I can't tell anyone about this. Well, when you're the pastor, you're the spiritual leader of your congregation, and you certainly admit to some struggles openly uh, to your congregation, the more or less acceptable struggles that everybody knows— but there is that element of shame that comes with all forms of sexual sin that says, I can't admit this publicly uh, to my congregation, to my wife, to my friends, to anyone. And uh, it is that sense of guilt and shame that keeps you silent. Well, guilt and shame, man, we could probably have three podcasts on just those topics, but let's delve a little deeper then. Um, what was that experience like, you know, over the years? I mean, I'm sure there were times where, you know, like some people, the guilt drives them to want to confess. They just can't take it anymore. Uh, but I know in, you know, listening to you share your testimony uh, earlier with me that there were other times maybe when it wasn't as strong. Can you talk more about kind of how that ebbed and flowed for you? The sins that kept me silent were guilt shame and fear. There's always the fear, self-protective pride really, that uh, if I confess my sin to my wife, she'll reject me. If I confess my sin to the elders of my church, they'll fire me. If I confess my sin to anyone, they won't think highly of me as they do. And uh, those are the things that keep all men quiet. I don't want anyone to know my shame. Before I started looking at pornography, my fantasy life centered on women that I knew. When I was young, it was classmates in school or college. But when you become a pastor, your fantasy life focuses on women that you see all the time, women who are in your own congregation, 
And for a pastor to admit that he is attracted to or fantasizes over women in his own congregation is a particularly shameful thing for him. And that's another thing that keeps him quiet. He can't admit to that behavior. Now, the longer you stay in sin, one of the things that happens is what we call the seared conscience. Your conscience disturbs you every time you sin, and so when you sin again and again and again and again, after a while, your conscience just gives up. And you sense the Holy Spirit's conviction in sin early on, but after a while, you're in such deep sin, you're not even hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit anymore. You have wandered far away from God. And though it's still sin and though he still convicts, you barely hear his voice anymore. I can relate to that. I mean, I, there were a number of years where I, I can honestly say guilt or conviction was, was basically absent from my life. What what sort of brought you out of that place where you're like, okay, yeah, I can't stay silent anymore? Well, for many years, my sin was primarily fantasy and masturbation. But I did eventually go into pornography. At a particularly weak time in my life, spiritually, I had high-speed internet on my computer I got one of those unsolicited emails in my inbox inviting me to click on a link that would take me to a pornographic site. And one day I just clicked on the link to see what was on the other side. And beginning from that day, for the next 14 years, there was never a week that I didn't view pornography at least once. And often it was many times for long periods of time and plumbing the depths of pornography destroys your walk with God. It distorts your thinking. It destroys your inside world. And you find yourself going deeper and deeper and deeper into sin until the things that you once were shocked and appalled at are the things that you do regularly now. And sin takes and takes and takes from you until there is nothing left. After a while, your heavenly father just decides <laughs> that he's had enough. And you've sinned against him and sinned against him. And uh, toward the very end, I was not just looking at pornography but my seared conscience and the depth of my sin gave me permission to act out in other ways, and I pursued another woman, and I committed adultery. And God saw to it that I was found out, that I lost everything that I ever thought I was going to lose. I lost my church, my ministry, my reputation, my income. I lost everything. And it's only when you lose everything that you're finally ready to repent, come into the light, and make that drastic change that's needed in order to get right with God and get something of a life back. 
And what I found when I came to Pure Life, finally, to get the help that I needed, was that God didn't give me my old life back. He gave me a new life. I think that'd be a great place to end it here by asking you just to describe what you're thankful about for where you are now and what this life is like. Can you just describe that? Well, Brooks, like many modern-day American Christians, I thought I was a pretty good Christian. I thought I was a pretty good guy. I just had this one secret problem that I uh, couldn't deal with, that I couldn't overcome, and that I was determined I would take to my grave. And what I've come to discover is that I'm not a pretty good guy. I'm a thoroughly depraved wretch, a a sinner by nature and by behavior, and that I am totally lost and helpless without a Savior. But I thank God every single day I have a Savior, and He shed His blood for me, and He died on a cross so that that cross would break the power of sin over my life and that I really can walk in freedom. I can repent every single time His Holy Spirit brings conviction to me and I can hear His voice again. His Word is alive to me for the first time in many, many years and I can live a Spirit-filled, Spirit-led, victorious life serving my Savior by serving others. It is the Christian life And I can live it not by myself because I'm weak and without strength, but in Christ I can do all things. And so I'm living my life serving him now. How do you counsel someone from the Word of God who has been studying the Bible his whole life? How do you use the Word of God to show a minister his desperate need? Biblical counselor Jordan Yoshimine discusses how he offers counsel to the ministry leader who has come to him for help. All right, Jordan, here at Pure Life, it is not uncommon for us to counsel men who were pastors or in full-time Christian work of some kind. I know you yourself were a church leader before you went through the residential program. What is it like counseling a pastor in sexual sin? Is it different than counseling anyone else who's struggling with sexual sin? Um, Actually, not really. Um, You would think that um, there would be some differences in how you counsel, but Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, Romans 3, Psalm 14 say, There was no one good, no, not one. So we're all in the same boat. Every single one of us, every single person on this planet um, is sinful by nature and needs a Savior and needs Jesus to be their Lord. So when people step into uh, the counseling office, I just see them as another person in need uh, to really know Jesus as Lord. Okay, so same Bible, same truth that you're giving them. But what are some maybe specific challenges then that come up when you're trying to counsel a pastor? (laughs) Yeah. Um, I guess the main challenges, and really, I mean, it is for everyone, but specifically for pastors or those who have been in full-time Christian work for any length of time, is um, that they see themselves as Christians with a small little problem. 
Uh, they see their ministry work, their years and even decades of Christian service as something that they can store up and deposit and bring to the table into the counseling office and say, hey, I've been a pastor for 40 years. I've been a worship leader for 10 years. I've served in many different capacities. And really, uh, I just take them to um, Galatians 5, 16 through 21, or Matthew 13, uh, the parable of the sower and the seed. I take them to John 15, 2, and just kind of help them examine themselves where they're at spiritually. So I guess the main point I'm saying is that many times in the specific challenge we have with pastors is they come in with a preconceived notion that they're somewhere where they're actually not. Uh, Matthew 23 is another great example. Uh, Pharisee, um, clean on the outside, but inside full of dead man's bones. And so um, that is a challenge with pastors is they see themselves still as high up Christians. And really, they haven't taken the time to really examine themselves. Is it intimidating to counsel a pastor? You know, I mean, I know you were in ministry, but still, is it what's that dynamic like? I would have said when I started counseling several years ago, yes, because I was unsure of my my footing as a count, biblical counselor. Uh, but now, absolutely not. I don't care. You know, it's, again, person walks in my office, they're a person in need. The Lord has put us together and uh, done so and ordained it and orchestrated events for us to, to spend nine months together. And so, no, I feel like it's my calling to speak truth into whoever sits across from me in my office. Well, thinking to the substance of what you would be communicating to a counselee who's coming out of ministry, what do you tell them? Because I'd think a lot of times, you know, they know the Bible, they know some of the things that you will probably bring up, maybe even better than you do. Yeah. In fact, I even use that uh, in counseling, especially with those when I read their applications with uh, several letters behind their name. And going back to the previous question, whether it can be intimidating, my first couple questions is, you know, while you seem to know the Bible, you've done a lot of studying about the Word of God, and yet you're still here, uh, still in this program. So where did the Word of God and all that knowledge get you? And really kind of um, help them see and help them really kind of question, uh, again, where really am I at? That's kind of the bottom line. Uh, the, those first couple weeks, those first couple months in counseling is to see that they're not where they think they are spiritually. So, yeah. So, I mean, we'll just go back to Scripture. You know, uh, we'll go over John 15. We'll go over Matthew 23. We'll go over Romans 1. We'll go over Galatians 5 several other passages, and I just had a counseling session with a gentleman who's been in uh, ministry for almost two decades, and when I read those passages, when we read those passages, he started weeping. It was like he was reading that for the first time. So it's amazing when you actually get in this setting what the Lord can do, and when the Word is breathed uh, life with the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit comes in and breathes, breathes life into the Scripture, where our, before it was probably something they read, something they knew, um, but there was no actual 
uh, application to that their own lives and in their own hearts. I'm sure you've seen all kinds of reactions from pastors or leaders, whoever that you're counseling. What are some of the extremes of how people take that when they are hearing you question where they're at, hearing you teach them things they already know in one respect? How does that go? I mean, sometimes I imagine it goes differently. Yeah, unfortunately, um, we can't uh, drag people into a life with Christ um, or a deeper walk with Him or returning to their first love. Um, We're never going to say, you're not saved. We're never going to say, we're going to provide the evidence in the Bible and go to scriptures and let them decide for themselves where they're at. And at that point, people can either say, no, I'm going to stay and believe what I believe in or and believe in my past and believe they're not willing to really let go and surrender all those years of service. And it's unfortunate. I take them to Matthew 7, and I said, okay, people are going to get before Jesus, before the Lord, before the Father, and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things? And they're, and the Lord's going to say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know, Depart from me. I never knew you. And it's unfortunate that even when faced with all those scripture, people harden their hearts. They're exposed to so much truth, not just in the counseling office, in our in our services, in their homework, in uh, video assignments, in their workplace, uh, their roommates, everywhere in our residential program, and even our overcomers at home program. Uh, they're faced with truth, and um, we see men, unfortunately, and a lot of times people who have been in ministry. Um, just say, no, I know, you know, I'm not willing to face and I'm not really willing to examine my heart. They want to stay in religion. I guess that's the main thing is people don't want to move into a relationship with the Lord. They want to stay in the religious aspect of Christianity, which isn't Christianity at all. It's really aligning yourself with the devil. You can only serve two masters. And if you're not in relationship with the Lord, you could still be doing Christian things and doing all the right things, tithing, showing up at church, preaching a sermon, whatever, and have no reality of Jesus in your life. And we see many, many people get stuck in religion and their version of Christianity and their version of Uh, really today's uh, many churches in today's evangelical church. It's really sad. It really is. Wow, that's heavy stuff. It is. I know someone's going to have to go through counseling to really receive the full impact of what they need if they're finding themselves stuck in ministry, but also in sin. But I did think maybe we could end with, could you give us a few of the key points that you try to emphasize during the time you're working with a pastor or some other leader who's come to you for help? It really, Brooks, it really, really is awesome when a, a, a pastor or a worship leader, someone who's been in ministry, a, min, uh, a missionary, um, really comes to the foot of the cross in complete submission to the Father Um, surrendering his will to the Lordship of Christ into saving faith, because when that happens, there is something 
beautiful. It's like a, a transaction takes place in in the heavenlies where a man trades religion in for re- that relationship that I was talking about. And then when we talk about the things of the Lord and we talk about future things or just their life in Christ now, it is amazing to see that uh, they just want Jesus, and it's just about Jesus. It's just about being in relationship with Jesus. And many of these men that come in are married, have kids, and they see um, the value and the need and, and what God's calling them first to is to be uh, the spiritual leader in their home. So that's kind of where a lot of times when they come uh, into that relationship with Christ, where I focus a lot of my attention, especially with those who have are been married or even divorced and have kids, is really to, to work on that Ephesians 5, 25 through 31, serving their wife, loving their wife, uh, leading their wife, um, preparing her to be the pure and spotless bride of Christ. Um, and then ministry, whatever, that is just kind of on the back burner. You know, people should not, uh, pastors should not, worship leaders should not go directly back into ministry. So my focus is always on the marriage. If they're single, um, to be uh, a dispenser of God's mercy to their family, to th- those whose lives they've devastated, if they were like youth pastors or, um, you know, uh, really uh, sowing seeds of uh, faith and love back into those whose lives they've devastated. So um, it's definitely not directing them back to ministry. It's back leading them into relationship with the Lord. And if they're married, definitely into being the priest of their home. So can a leader be restored? One thing I love about working at Pure Life Ministries is that I get a front row seat as God does this very thing. And we've been seeing God do it for 30 years. But what does it look like for a leader to walk this path? I want you to hear from Ed Book, our Director of Counseling, as he shares his own testimony of restoration, as well as godly counsel from the Word for any leaders who might be listening. Pastor Ed, I should mention at the start here that you are someone who has been restored to ministry after sexual sin. So I know you have personal experience to bring to this discussion as well as a very personal view on this, uh, but obviously reasons why you believe that that view is biblical. And I thought we could begin with the fact that for those who are not in ministry, they might not be as familiar with this discussion or debate about can someone be restored after they've fallen into sexual sin while they're in the ministry. Can you give us a little background about that question and why it's debated? Sure, Brooks, I can try and do that for us. Um, I, I guess the issue really boils down to whether a person serving in ministry who has had some sort of moral failure should ever be allowed uh, to resume his ministerial duties at some point. And um, there are 
people who would say he cannot, and they might point to a passage like 1 Corinthians 5, uh, maybe around verse 9 through 13, somewhere in there, where Paul is talking uh, specifically to a situation in the Corinthian church where they had a man who was in sexual sin within the congregation. And Paul is writing and he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. And he's got a few um other comments there, and then he goes on. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or drunkard or extortioner, not to even eat with such a person. And he concludes that whole passage, Brooks, with the statement, therefore put away from yourselves the evil person. So in other words, Paul is taking sexual sin and some of these other similar sins very seriously and saying you need to separate from this person. He doesn't belong in your congregation. He doesn't belong at your dining table, and he doesn't belong in your home. You need to be completely uh, separated from that person. And that's, if we take that uh, as the biblical standard for just a member of the congregation in sexual sin, you know, how much more then should we consider it the standard for someone who's in leadership within the church who would become involved in sexual sin? On the other hand, uh, Brooks, there are folks who would deal with it a little bit differently because they would point to a passage uh, like maybe 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where Paul seems to have actually this very same situation in mind uh, and later says uh, the punishment that the majority inflicted was sufficient for that man uh, who had, had apparently repented somewhere in between these two letters. So Paul's saying, you know, the way you dealt with him before when I told you to separate from him or uh, was sufficient. But now, on the contrary, he says, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. So, you know, on on the one hand, Paul's saying separate, and later saying uh, it seems right to restore this one into the fellowship and and reaffirm your love to him. So, Brooks, I guess if I base it on the inquiries we've received here at Pure Life Ministries, this uh, controversy, if you want to call it that, seems to revolve around three uh, issues. Uh, The first one is whether or not a person who's had a moral failure must step down from his ministry position. You know, uh, maybe it's a little clearer in some cases where it's a senior pastor, but uh, it seems to get... uh, a little uh, less clear the further down the leadership chart you go. So uh, an associate pastor, worship leader, some of those other uh, positions, people aren't quite so sure whether stepping down is absolutely essential, whether he needs to resign. Uh, If he doesn't resign, should we fire him? Can't we just take his apology and some sort of commitment to abstain from this kind of behavior as as adequate and move on? So, So there's that whole issue of whether they should step down and what that should look like. And then secondly, there's the issue of how long that person should remain on the sidelines before he's allowed back in the pulpit or the mission field or whatever position he held in ministry prior. And and a third issue arises uh, when they come to the discussion of what specific steps a fallen leader must complete before he can be restored. Uh, typically, I believe the people are asking us questions in terms of what kind of treatment should he have? What kind of counseling should he undergo um, before we let him back in the pastorate? So going back 
to the view you were starting to put forward as you introduced those two Bible passages, um, someone might hear that and think, okay, yeah, I understand forgiving someone, welcoming them back into the church, but we're talking here about sexual sin by a leader, and that is very serious. So how could you consider giving someone who has that kind of has had that kind of authority a second chance? Well, the Bible is our go-to resource for guidance in dealing with any of these questions, and we don't need to look very deeply in the pages of Scripture, I believe, before we see quite a few illustrations, really, of people, including leaders, who have failed but are reinstated or restored by the Lord. And um, I would suggest, for example, Peter uh, comes to mind readily. Uh, He didn't commit sexual sin, of course, but he did deny Christ three times, a a very serious offense. Yet I think we're all familiar with the account in John 21 where Jesus makes a point of restoring Peter. And Aaron comes to mind, Moses' brother, who was uh, the priest in uh, Israel throughout the period of the Exodus. Uh, He was anointed uh, for that role. But at one point, we read that Aaron makes a golden calf and leads the Israelites into idolatry, uh, which did include sexual immorality, in fact. Uh, And the whole episode results in some pretty severe consequences, but Aaron was ultimately permitted to remain as priest over the people. And, uh, of course, uh, probably the most famous example would be King David, who uh, we know committed adultery with Bathsheba. And as is often the case, uh, there were pretty severe consequences for his sin, but God also forgave him and restored the kingdom to him. So, uh, Brooks, it's not difficult, I think, to biblically justify restoring a fallen leader, even a pastor, into ministry. Um, But I'm not suggesting, when I point to these examples, that it's automatic. Sexual sin is very serious. um, I think perhaps in our day it is the number one issue that is corrupting the church and robbing her of her power and witness. Uh, So if a pastor is going to be restored, we need to be certain that his sin is dealt with. These examples I just mentioned, Peter never again denied Christ. Aaron never again made a a golden calf. David never committed adultery again. So in the same way, we need to be sure that sexual sin is truly purged out of a fallen leader's life before we restore him. When I hear that word restoration, it's easy for me to think, okay, someone who was a pastor had to leave his job and now he gets his job back. And yet I think that's pretty surface level maybe and was wondering if you could help us dig a little deeper and tell us what this restoration process would involve behind the scenes in order for it to be successful. For me, Brooks, the the answer is really the word repentance. Repentance is the, the key to the restoration process. Without repentance, there really can be and should be no restoration. Uh, And I don't mean by repentance simply, you know, a public apology or displaying remorse uh, when I'm speaking of repentance. I mean turning away from the sin and turning toward God. That's biblical repentance. And that turning must take place first in a man's heart and 
only God can tell when that happens, when a person repents in their heart like that. It usually takes some time for others to verify that that turnaround has actually taken place. It may take a, a little while for convincing outward evidence to appear. And personally, I would advocate for the spiritual authorities to wait for that convincing outward evidence before they make any commitments or plans for restoring an individual. In fact, Brooks, I don't even think restoration should be discussed until the repentance is confirmed. In other words, I would say it like this. The aim in dealing with the fallen leader is not restoration. should never let that become the, the aim or the focus of what's happening. The aim should always be repentance. And after there's been a period, though, of uh, convincing repentance, then a discussion about the steps of restoration may take place. The key word I heard there in what you said was time. Uh, which probably doesn't seem like something somebody would want in that position of having to just put their life on hold, their career of ministry on hold. It makes me want to ask you, could you just talk directly for a minute to someone in ministry? I mean, we, we make these programs, and we do believe that the person listening out there right now could very well be a person in this position, a pastor who does know that he needs to deal with something in his life, or someone working with, someone in their ministry, and trying to decide what to do. So talk right to them, uh, maybe that person in this situation, about what you want them to focus on right now, uh, even though they're asking about restoration. Well, pastors, if you're that individual that Brooks has just described here, uh, dealing with some sort of moral failure in your life and maybe secretly uh, dealing with it nobody else knows yet, I just want to remind you that the power of God is missing in your ministry. And you may not realize that, just like Samson didn't realize that his strength had left him when his hair was cut uh, by Delilah, but that's the situation that you're in, and it is imperative that you deal with this and don't just continue the charade of powerless ministry, but come to grips with the failure in your life and step back, step out of ministry first and deal with your heart, deal with your relationship with the Lord and come to a genuine, deep, permanent repentance over the moral failure and that will give you a much better platform for ministry than you have had so far in your life. Yeah, I'm really glad to hear you put it that directly because <laughs> what I have the benefit of knowing that those listening might not is that this is just a reflection of your own experience. You had to take the circumstances that way because—and uh, I just wanted you to maybe share some about how when this all came out in your life, I mean, it wasn't just a clear-cut uh, step one, step two, step three, and now I'm back, you know, doing what I was doing before. I mean, there, it was quite the journey for you. Yes, Brooks. Everything we're talking about, uh, from my point of view, I've been speaking out of uh, personal experience and testimony here. Uh, my own fall came back in the early 2000s. Uh, I was working as a full-time counselor in a Christian drug and alcohol treatment facility at the time. 
over the seven years that I was working in that facility, I had allowed my spiritual condition to deteriorate. Of course, I was oblivious to that at the time. I'm saying all this now in hindsight, but I had allowed my spiritual condition to deteriorate. And eventually, um, that opened the door for me to get involved in an adulterous relationship. And when the when my sexual sin was exposed, I tried to talk the leadership of the ministry into letting me just take a leave of absence from my position and, and get some counseling. And instead, they fired me, uh, which in hindsight, I agree fully was the right thing for them to do, although I didn't really appreciate it very much at the time, of course. Um, I eventually came to Pure Life Ministries and completed the residential program in 2004 and still uh, had no expectation of restoration into ministry at that point. Uh, After I completed the program, I moved back to my home area in Pennsylvania uh, and spent uh, the better part of the next year just uh, working on rebuilding my marriage with my wife and and, held a, a job outside of ministry. After about 10 months, though, we did have the door open for us to come back to Pure Life Ministries in Kentucky uh, to complete an internship program, and we chose to do that, my wife and I together. And I can say this, too, by the way, completing that internship program was even harder than going through the residential program. So God was still doing a lot of work in my life, and I wasn't coming to the ministry to minister, if I can say it that way. I was coming to let the Lord deal with me. But I held down a position in customer service and later had some other duties on the administrative side of the ministry. And I believe, Brooks, it was probably around uh, late 2008 when I was given any sort of leadership role within the ministry, when I was what some people might consider restored. Uh, wasn't quite the same level that I was at before even, but uh, definitely was had some leadership responsibility within Pure Life Ministries. But that, so that time frame was uh, over four years from the time that I went through the residential program before the Lord put me back in a leadership position in ministry. And I didn't have any counseling responsibilities until much later, until 2015, which would have been uh, over 11 years before the Lord opened the door for me to be restored into that area of ministry. So uh, you're right when you refer to the word time as a key part of this restoration process. You can't be in a hurry, and that's why I said myself that you shouldn't make restoration the focus. Going through any program, including Pure Life Ministries, isn't just a stepping stone to restoration. The restoration may happen, but it will be the result of being restored in a right relationship with the Lord. I know obviously you wouldn't say that God can only take someone through this spiritual process at Pure Life, but I mean, this is where you came, and I know you certainly would recommend it to someone in this position. Can you maybe clarify why Pure Life Ministries is ideal in your thinking for someone who's coming to that place of restoration? 
Sure, and perhaps I am a, a little biased, but it's also uh, true, Brooks, that Pure Life Ministries residential program is the only facility I know of in the entire world, literally, that specializes in dealing with sexual sin from a biblical perspective, solely from a biblical perspective. There are other facilities that approach it from, you know, integrated perspective, psychological perspectives, other forms of therapy, but uh, when it comes to dealing with it from a biblical perspective, Pure Life Ministries uh, is the only one I know of that does it the way we do it. And secondly, though, I would go back to that word repentance, if I could, for a minute, because what really profited me uh, at personally at Pure Life Ministries, and I think helps everyone who comes here, is that you end up immersed in a very consecrated atmosphere, an atmosphere that honestly has taken the prayers and laid down lives of multitudes of staff members who have gone before me even, and uh, have generated this uh, consecrated atmosphere that we come into that really promotes and makes possible uh, that repentance that needs to happen. It really facilitates that when you live in a godly, sober atmosphere that is just fully consecrated to the Lord. Another factor that I guess comes readily to mind is the fact that it is a nine-month program, which I know on the one hand probably sounds like way too long to many. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, going back to that word time, it does take time for this uh, restoration process to to take root in a person's life. And nine months seems to be about the right time for getting rooted and established, taking someone who's been living a life of defeat, a life of out-of-control sexual sin, and getting them established, well-established in a lifestyle of obeying Scripture, living in the light, developing a disciplined lifestyle in place of all of those other out-of-control habits and behaviors. In other words, it'll take nine months to get someone really started down that road of becoming a man of godly character that is going to carry them through to victory for the rest of their life. Well, another key word you mentioned again there was repentance, and obviously that sums up a lot of this. And I thought I could leave the person hearing this interview with, if you go to episode 329, which was an episode from earlier this year, we have a whole interview with Ed Book on this subject of repentance uh, in that episode, and I encourage you to check that out just to hear more of this important topic. If you'd like more helpful information related to leaders and sexual sin, just go to purelifeministries.org slash podcast and click on the additional resources button under this podcast, episode number 341. Also, if you missed episode 340, we looked at some of the contributing factors for why leaders fall into sexual sin, and we would encourage you to check that out as well. All right, that's all for today's program. Okay, let's get to the special announcement. You remember Jim from the first part of our show? Hey, Brooks. I'm still in here. Wait, what? Oh, hey. Well, anyway, you know what's going on, but let's let everybody else in on it. Absolutely. For the past six months, I've been training to be a biblical counselor, and the leadership here decided that now is the right time for me to start counseling men in our Overcomers at Home program. So I'm handing the host role over to Jim. 
So Jim, as your first act as host of Purity for Life, I will let you give everyone the rest of the news. Thanks, Brooks. Purity for Life was launched in 2008 as a weekly radio program. But in 2015, we had to scale back production to a bi-weekly podcast. But in this last year, this program has become a really important part of our ministry. And so starting July 15th, we're going to make Purity for Life available again as a weekly radio show. Now, don't freak out. We're still going to offer Purity for Life as a podcast. Plus, a weekly show means that you get twice as many episodes each month. Good deal for you. We look forward to what the Lord has in store for us in the future, and we are grateful to be able to take you to where real life meets real Christianity as we tackle the tough issues for those struggling with sexual sin. Thanks for listening. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.